Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we review Ray Fiennes in the satirical haute cuisine thriller The Menu and Paul Meskel's After Sun. We profile the legendary director Walter Hill with the writer of the first proper authorised film biography of Hill. And former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Now I begin by apologising to you uh, because I have to play this. I wish there was more that I could do. But we have procedures to follow when we're dealing with a Jane Doe. A Jane Doe? I am not a Jane Doe. Okay, well, I don't know what else to call you. You've got no identity, no money, and no place to go. I have a place. I mean, the lodge. I mean, we have some cancellations. She could stay with us. And you are? This is Jake Russell. He's the one who found you. Does he look familiar to you at all? No. He is definitely a stranger. And I'm not about to follow him to some murder cabin in the woods. Jake owns the North Star Lodge. Oh, the North Star Lodge. (sighs) Okay, does it have room service? You know, it's actually more of like a bed and breakfast type place. What kind of breakfast? On second thought, I think she's probably better off here. That is a clip from the movie Falling for Christmas, starring Lindsay Lohan. I'm apologising, not so much for the content, although we'll get to that, but because we're discussing Christmas in November. I'm a big Christmas fan, but I'm one of those people who would really not like to get into it until December starts. Uh, This slow creep of Christmas starting in September is just nonsense to me, and I won't have it in the house. That said, I am paid to talk to you about films and TV shows and whether I want to avoid it or not is mute because Falling for Christmas is just all over Netflix at the moment and it seems to be number one certainly at the time of talking to you in its film chart and in case you haven't heard Falling for Christmas is obviously a Christmas movie it is on Netflix since earlier in the week or maybe late last week and in a way it marks the return of Lindsay Lohan who uh, you know a fine actress, but her private life or her tabloid troubles in a way overtook a lot of that great career. So she's back in a Christmas rom-com. This is about a spoiled heiress who you heard there, Sierra, who lives with her father in this very fancy Christmassy kind of ski resort. Anyway, she's out skiing and she falls. Oh no, yes. And she wakes up not knowing who she is or what she is. And she loses her memory completely. And unfortunately, unfortunately for those around her, she hasn't lost her spiky, spoiled personality. But of course, like all Christmas movies, it's not too late to learn the error of her ways. So uh, Sierra, as she wakes up in her bed, she befriends, comes into the orbit of Jake, who you heard there, a widower who runs a much less fancy ski lodge. Uh, it's more like a bed and breakfast. And she moves in with him. He, he's a widow as well. He's played by the, the unusually named Chord Overstreet, who you may know from Glee. And he's this gorgeous little daughter. And Lindsay Lohan's character moves in 
with them and she, as I say, starts to learn the error of her ways. Uh, it's a standard, incredibly cheesy, unbelievable Christmas rom-com that sees a mismatch pairing proving that opposites attract and a rich person who's going to learn the error of their ways. You've seen it all before. It's nonsense. It's kind of crap. So I'm not really recommending this to you. So I don't want you emailing me saying, you told me about that movie. It's not very good. That said, if you have a high tolerance for Christmas smalls, which a lot of people do, because when it comes to Christmas movies, we kind of leave our brain at the door. I think this might work for you. I, I think you'll probably feel festive. You'll probably smile and you'll get a dollop of Christmas cheer. Uh, so it's not a very good movie, but it kind of works as a Christmas movie. So that's a very qualified, you know, review. It's not very good, but it's not the worst thing to watch if you want a bit of Christmas cheer, I would suggest. And very importantly, Lindsay Lohan is great. Uh, Lindsay Rowan is a terrific actress. She has huge presence, and this was a pleasant reminder of that. And she's a very good comedic actress. So uh, I, I, I'm very curious to see where Lindsay Lohan goes next. I think she might, her, her next act, her second act, I'm not sure what act she's on. She's had many acts, but her next act, I think, will be very interesting. Anyway, that's Falling for Christmas. Now going gangbusters on Netflix. A very qualified review from me. For that one. And then I just want to mention, no doubt you've heard many times this week about the sad passing of Vicky Phelan. Now, tribute has been paid to her, uh, the length and breadth of this station and all stations, and rightly so. I just wanted to say, only a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Sasha King, the director, about her fantastic documentary, Vicky, which is basically the story of Vicky Phelan and all that she achieved. And it's a beautiful film because it has the story which we all need reminding of but it also has a meditation on Vicky's life and, and what mattered to her and it's a beautiful piece of work and I want to tell you that that documentary Vicky by Sasha King will be released digitally on Monday November the 21st on Apple TV, Google Play, Volta, IFI at Home, Virgin Media Ireland and Amazon Prime Video. And as I say, it is a powerful and poignant testament to the warrior that was Vicky Phelan. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to this week's new releases. I'm joined by a resident critic, Mark Ryle, to look at the movies The Menu and a movie starring Paul Meskel, lots of people are talking about, called After Sun. We begin with The Menu and we begin with Mark Ryle. Hello, sir. Hello, John. Are you well? I'm tip-top. Good stuff. Very good well, week at the cinema. We've got some strong um, new releases. Well, that's a that's a buoyant start. So yeah, I've only seen strange. one of them. Let's, <laughs> yeah, uh, I've only seen one of them. So let's start with the uh, one I haven't seen, The Menu. Yeah. I wish I had. Ray Fiennes playing a creepy chef. Do Indeed. tell us more. Yeah, it's, this is a, it's a satirical thriller um, with elements of horror. It's about a group of super-rich Haute Cuisine groupies who have paid um, an ex extortionate amount of money for a table at this restaurant, Hawthorne. It's incredibly exclusive, Michelin-starred, and it's located on its own private island. And Ray Fiennes plays the Hawthorne's 
intimidating and reclusive head chef, Julian Slowick. And as the courses of the tasting menu get weirder and weirder, it, it starts to become apparent that Slowick has more something more malevolent in mind rather than sending the diners home with a gift bag. Mm. And they travel to this almost like Love Island island. I know it's not Love Island, but they have to get on a boat to get to have their dinner. Anything, right? anything but Love Island, yeah. It's, yes. this, is, it, this is really, really terrific. It's a bit like uh, Agatha Christie's and then there are none crossed with Willy Wonka. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's set up like a horror. Um, I mean, when the guests arrive at the island, they, they, they arrive on boats, so they're, they're, it's secluded, and then they're all led into this very austere concrete bunker, and then the doors are shut. That's, that's the setup of a horror movie, and there are other, other elements of horror that are peppered throughout, but it's not really. Um, I suppose you could say this is a horror for people who don't do horrors. Mm. It's, it's really more of a thriller, and yeah. it's a very, very good one. Um, and I, I guess the broad strokes of where it's all going are not difficult to make out but there are some small details and developments along the way that that I, I certainly didn't see coming and there seems to be some very funny stuff about like sending up you know highfalutin food it's, and fancy menus like there's there's uh, from what i read about it and so on the trailer there's like one meal which is breadless bread and stuff like that bread. another one is uh, i think it's seaweed on uh, a rock is uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it is very very funny and i did laugh a lot it's very dry and black um you know whole cuisine it's and this ridiculous obsession with uh you know conspicuous wealth of mm. you know, the super rich it's it's a very easy target for satire but i think the menu pulls it off very well um i suppose having directed a lot of episodes of succession the director uh mark mylod he knows a thing or two about the super wealthy yes um, and what I what I really liked about it though is that it starts out as a sort of a send up of the pretentiousness and this the the emperor's new clothes stupidity of of tasting menus and celebrity mm -hmm. chefs but but uh, eventually you kind of begin to come around to um, Ray Fiennes' character's point of view um, it's it's it, it, it I suppose like. Ray Fiennes is, is at the top of this pyramid, you know, he's tremendous in this, he's very controlled, very intense, and he's also very funny, he's really good at comedy, as he's shown in things like In Bruges and the Grand mm. Budapest Hotel, um, but that's not what he's known for, and he doesn't really get the chance very often. Um, but like, he's very good at comedy. He also, he's just, he's the, the epitome of controlled disdain and borderline malevolence in this, but, um, it's also an ensemble piece and you've got some incredible character actors like, uh, John Leguizamo and Reed Burney. And then you've got younger talent like Nicholas Holt and the, the ubiquitous <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy. She is just yeah. everywhere at the moment. Yeah. And is she good in it? She's great. Um, Nicholas Holt plays. He, I suppose, he's a, a Slowic super fan, and he, he, his character hangs on on his every word and rhapsodizes over every morsel of foam and froth that that arrives on his plate. But then you've got Anya Taylor Joy, who's the. I suppose that she is. She, she, I suppose she's the, the the sole voice of reason <laughs> in this. Um, she's not the person who is supposed to be there that, that Nicholas Holt was supposed to bring. And the fact that her name is not the one that's on the guest list throws a, a bit of a spanner in the works. Um, mm. But like I say, she's the sole skeptic in a like the kitchen is filled with these with the, the with uh you know Slowik's disciples and the, all the tables of the restaurant are full, filled with um acolytes and 
she's the only one who's kind of willing to push back and to call out the you know the the ridiculousness of the whole thing yeah and slowick the the character that ray fines plays he's growing tired of these celebrities and rich people he's been feeding this whole cuisine for all these years right very much so yeah and that's yeah. kind of what the whole film is about i think the I, like i really 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 enjoyed this um i would say that i think the setup works a lot better than the 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 ultimate payoff um, right. and i think the final act definitely has some issues that probably should have been ironed out but it's such a it's such a ride up to that point that i'm willing to overlook the you know the occasional clangor i suppose the midsection and the build up is is tremendous Okay, fantastic. The last thing I saw Ray finds in was actually mm. The Dig on Netflix, which I interviewed oh, yeah. him for. And uh, I was going to say he's on a good run, but I'm not sure if he ever really lost it, Ray Fiennes. But, uh, I, I'm sure if I looked, I could find... Yeah, I'm the, sure you could. You're good, hanger, you're, you're good at that kind of thing. Tell me no, this. To be fair, <laughs> he's, 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 like, he's, he's really is one of the best, you know? Yeah, I, I'd forgotten actually in... I, I remember the Grand Hotel Budapest well, but I'd forgotten in Bruges, his small part, but it is quite comic. He does do comedy well, as you he say, did, yeah. when, when he's given the chance to do that. So what would you say stars-wise for the menu? Uh, this is terrific. I'm going to give it a four. Wow, he doesn't hand them out that easily, listeners. No. <clears throat> a four for the menu, which is on general release this weekend. Let's take a clip of the menu. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Hawthorne. I'm Julian Slowick, and tonight it'll be our pleasure to feed you. The curtain rises. Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, salt, sugar, protein, bacteria, fungi, various plants and animals, and at times entire ecosystems. But I have to beg of you one thing, it's just one. Do not eat. It's easier. Taste, savor, relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful, but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. A clip of the menu there, starring Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor, Joy and Nicholas Holt, and others besides. Now, Mark gave it four. Now, the other movie that's released this week that we're going to talk about, which I have seen, is After Sun. And I suppose people are interested because it's Paul Meskel, mm. uh, who shot to fame. And there's there's no two ways about it with his GAA shorts in Normal People, the massive hit in lockdown. So After Sun, uh, an unusual movie, but a good movie, I thought. What's going on in After Sun? He is so hot right now. Um, Paul Meskel <laughs> and... <laughs> Sorry, you're on the radio? I, I don't know if you, you're on another call there. <laughs> no, this is just a private conversation. Um, he, uh, Paul Meskel and uh, Francesca Cario, they're, they're uh, Callum and Sophie, a young single father and his 11-year-old daughter, on holiday together in uh, a budget resort in Turkey in the 1990s. And that, in essence, is about it. One of the things that becomes apparent as the film goes on is that this is the the memory of the adult Sophie who's looking back on what turned out to be a seminal moment in her life. And although After Sun, it's a work of fiction, um, the first-time writer-director Charlotte Wells has described it as emotionally autobiographical. And it's very obvious from watching this that it's a, it's a deeply personal piece of work. 
Mm. And what I like out front, what I really liked about it, like the, the way you're saying that it's an adult remembering, you only, or I certainly only got a sense of that you know, at times it, it took a long time for me to figure that out. I mean, that might be just me slow on the uptake. No, no, but no. What I also liked about it, and we could talk a bit more about what's in it, but just at the offset, there was, I really hadn't a clue where it was going to go. And I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. It's one of those movies where it only really becomes uh, apparent when you finished, if that yes. makes sense. Completely, from- completely. It's um, it's fascinating, right? It's a very, it's a, as I said, it's a very personal, and it, it often feels like we're you're eavesdropping on a private conversation, mm. and it's a very very small movie. Nothing groundbreaking happens, and what Charlotte Wells does is she allows the story to unfold at a very pure and unforced pace, um, mm. and one small detail giving gives way to another small detail. And then eventually when all those little details accumulate, you're left with a really intriguing window into uh, a very personal relationship. And it's only really apparent when the movie is over what the format of what you've just watched is, if that makes any kind of sense at all. Yeah, it does to me, but I've seen the movie. But yeah, I, know. I hope it's listeners <laughs> can get it's it. can talk about it. Yeah, it, it kind of is. But but uh, to back that up, what mm. I found about it is that it's grown in my appreciation as the days have gone on because I've reflected yeah. on it a bit and I got, yeah. oh, that's what's going on because there's weird things happening. Like at the start, we see Paul Meskel doing Tai Chi and it doesn't yeah. seem to have any rhyme or reason to it. But then afterwards it does now i thought paul meskel was great he did a really decent i thought i'm not a scots person but i thought he did a great scots accent and the girl the playing the 11 year old the actress's name is Uh, francesca corio she's amazing i thought she was absolutely brilliant because she does that thing and i hope this won't be a spoiler but that divide between being a child or becoming a teenager and maybe being a teenager who in some sense has to, in a small way, take on the adult world and care for her own parent. I thought she was absolutely brilliant and so utterly believable. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell that adolescence is looming. Um, yeah. It's, but it's, it's all, it's very unshowy and organic. And I think Mescal and, and Francesca Corio, they're, they're just incredibly natural and easygoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, maybe it was me, but this is another one of those movies where I was waiting for something bad to happen. Well, um, no, I, I completely yeah. agree with you. And 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 there's a quiet dread from the start. Yeah. And you're like, oh, but that dissipates, I felt. It does. But then there's this thing the whole time. I mean, you mentioned the, the Tai Chi. I, you, you find yourself, I was wondering, like, I was waiting for Callum to, to mess up in some way. And, you know, the Tai Chi, why does he have, he's got all these um, books on self-help and meditation. And you think, well, there's something, there's something happening here. And as as far as Sophie goes, she's kind of pally with these much older uh, teenagers. And you're kind of expecting something bad to happen on that front, but nothing really does. And I did, I spent the first half trying to work out what the dynamic was between the father and the daughter. Yeah. Um, but as I say, I think it's a, the whole point of it is that it is about memory, mm. you know, and it's not anything huge that happens, but it's about how there's these, one of the ways we can tell that it's the 1990s apart from the, 
the, the music, I suppose, is that um, they have this video camera and they are that that and there's this video footage that's interspersed into the the, the film um, that is actually happening at the time. But what I think what's going on there is that. The, these these video segments, these are things that the adult Sophie has probably watched over and over and over mm, again. Yeah, and that's kind of coloring the 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 memory of, of of the rest of the stuff. It's 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 a hard movie to talk about without having seen it. Yeah, no, it is. And 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 the way you're saying nothing really happens. I mean, just to, I would say towards the end something does. There is a kind of narrative turning point where maybe we're revealed or we're shown a bit more of Paul Meskel's character story. But I just want to go back to the way you said it was very organic. Like mm. their relationship it really felt almost like a documentary at times, the way that they're sitting at tables and they're just talking about the, like almost it's awkward at times, the way you imagine, because, you know, <laughs> I just thought it was brilliant. You know, sometimes I take my 10 year old, we were away somewhere recently and I took him to this restaurant and it is awkward because you're sitting in a restaurant going, Oh, I'll have the beef. Like I thought it was so brilliantly done. It was such a accurate picture of what parenthood and, childhood can be between two but I, I i loved it listen tell me this what are you going to say stars wise for after sun um i'm going to give it a four because i think it, it's it's small but it's it's perfectly formed it's small but meaty much exactly. like you no no i gotta stop this yes i'm going to give it four as well because i uh i, I loved it uh, and I, i'm loving it more as it's gone on i mean can't give it a five because as you say not every child deserves a biscuit i'm quoting mm. you back to you now a lot have you noticed that we've entered a new phrase of our relationship i'm using markisms to mark yes i think yeah. we, we need to we need to move into a the the third phase of our the third phase end game anyway so that is four for after some which is also on general release so mark's you know he's in good spirits with the movies he's seen this week's because it's four for the menu and four for after son long may it continue i doubt that uh, will be the case but thank you mark. <laughs> thanks john up next, the Hollywood maverick that is Walter Hill. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now the legendary director Walter Hill has been making and writing movies since the late 60s. His films include everything from The Driver, The Warrior, Southern Comfort, 48 Hours and late things like Last Man Standing. He's hopefully going to experience a late career high with the imminent, well semi-imminent release of Dead for a Dollar, a western, a western starring William Defoe and Christopher Waltz. Now author Wayne Byrne, who seems to write books at the speed most of us change our bedsheets, has just published Walter Hill, The Cinema of a Hollywood Maverick. The first major book on Hill, which Hill happily spoke to him for. Wayne was on with us this time last year for his book, which I really enjoyed, Welcome to Elm Street, Inside the Film and Television Nightmares. And he's previously written books on Burt Reynolds, which he spoke to us about, and the famed cinematographer Nick McLean, who he actually brought in into studio for my first week on air and saved my ass. Wayne, how are you? I'm very well, John. Thanks for having me back. Not at all. Now, listen, you, Wayne or Walter, you're Wayne. Walter Hill is a big deal and a lot of movie people love him. But I would suggest there are, there are plenty of people who aren't as aware of him as they should be. Now, your title describes him as a maverick, right? So where's the maverick in his career? How do you see him as a maverick? I would say he's, even though he works in the commercial mainstream, mm. he is very much an auteur filmmaker okay. and he plays by his own rules for yes. the most part. You know, uh, Walter Hill's, Hill film is a very distinctive 
film mm. and you know you, you can tell pretty much straight away a Walter Hill film yeah. not only that, that he because he uses certain cast members recurringly uh, crew members there's a certain toughness to his films and a certain style which comes from um, certain editors he works mm. with certain cinematographers he works with and there's a certain leanness to his films yeah. you know there's not a whole lot of fat there you know, and that's <laughs> yeah. in, in his scripts as well um, he's noted in Hollywood for his very particular style of screenwriting, which yeah. is very terse, very economical with words. Mm. And that plays out on the screen as well. Yeah. Um, but a Walter Hill film is a very distinctive style. The Maverick is, you know, he works within the Hollywood mainstream, but he, you know, has a very distinctive yeah. stamp. And he's at the edges a small bit, in, in some degrees, I suggest. Uh, tell me this. He said this great thing once. Well, you'd know better than me, but that every movie he's made in some way is a Western. Right. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I can see that. You know, there's a certain um, recurring themes and ideas within his stories, which are very much rooted in the Western in that they're they're very much, you know, about tough men in tough landscapes, be they rural or urban. You know, mm. um, it's usually a very moral story. Mm. Um, they're very simple tales mm. told very simply. And I guess yeah. that comes back to the, the screenwriting thing, which is very... Snappy and economical, you know. Yeah. Um, but of course, he has made several westerns as well, and he he works in the tradition of the great old Hollywood filmmakers like John Ford and Raoul Walsh, William Wellman, people like that. And I think that's where that that influence comes across as well. It's not um not always necessarily immediate, you mm-hmm. know. If you look at a film like um, Streets of Fire, which is a very eighties action musical yeah. you know you might have to mind it a little more deeply yes. to find the western elements in there you know beyond the surface now listen in terms of his career he started pretty much as a screenwriter like a lot of people do and it was with Sam Peckinpah that he found success that led him on to being a director is that right? that's right yeah he would credit the getaway the success of the getaway yeah. with giving him his opportunity to direct movies because really you know, he was working as a second assistant director on the likes of Bullet and Take the Money and Run, Woody mm-hmm. Allen's film. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be a writer, but, you know, he also wanted to be a director as well. But he was successful at writing. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a little bit longer to get into the directing. And one of the films he did do was Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway. And because of the success of that, you know, uh, producer Larry Gordon was making a movie at Columbia called The Street Fighter. A script, he had a script called The Street Fighter. And he really wanted Walter. Walter was one of the top screenwriters in the business at that point because of the success of The Getaway. And, you know, Larry Gordon, his remit at Columbia was to make low-budget genre films. But he really wanted to work with great screenwriters like Walter. So he said, well, maybe I can get Walter for a budget if I offer him the chance to direct. And that became Hard Times, Walter's debut film, which starred uh, James Coburn and Charles Bronson. And that's how Walter got his first directorial gig, was because Larry Gordon was, you know, he was quite thrifty. And, you know, he knew, well, if, if I want this very expensive screenwriter. Maybe I can lure him in for cheap, for scale, with the offer of directing. And that's how you got And it. that's how it all started. Now, I mentioned some of the movies in the title and some of my favourites are Southern Comfort, I Love 48 Hours, Who Doesn't? The Warriors, I, I don't know if I love it or I just loved it when I was a kid and I was too young to see it. But one of the things your books always do is that they draw attention to some of the movies people may not have known as well. I know you did that with the Burt Reynolds one as well. Are there movies you think deserve more credit of his that don't get it? Absolutely. And that was one of the most exciting things about working on this project for me was getting the chance to really dig into the likes mm. of Last Man Standing. which I, With Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Which, which I, I think is a decent movie. It's fantastic film and it's only kind of elevated in esteem for me as I've worked on the book and Mm. gotten to talk to everybody involved 
And, you know, there's other films like Extreme Prejudice and Trespass, which I think are as good as any of his, you know, quote-unquote classics, you know, yeah. The 40 Hours and The Warriors. And Walter was very happy, actually, to to hear that, you know, that that I loved them as much as I did the, the other stuff because he feels, you know, that they do deserve kind of a, how would you say, a reevaluation yeah. because he put as much work and love into them as he did the, the big successes. And they have kind of, they haven't been well received, especially in America and maybe England as well. They weren't yeah. so well received as they were in kind of like Italy, France. They seem to be, his in-between movies seem to mm. have had a better reception in places like that than yeah. they had in the, the mainstream the sign right. of a real Arturo when you get picked up in exactly, Europe. Yeah. Now listen, you mentioned talking to Walter. So was that, like you got big access to him it seems. So yeah. this is, do we call it an authorised biography of sorts? or I wouldn't call it a biography. I do call it a film biography yeah. as in it's the story of his life and career through his films. But it's authorised oh, because it you spoke to yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Was that always your plan? Because I know you spoke to all these people who've worked with him from cinematographers to all sorts of people but yeah. were you always hoping to get him or was it a lucky accident? Well, I kind of went into it expecting that I wouldn't get him yeah. because at the time I started it I knew he was in pre-production on Dead for a Dollar, his mm. new movie. And plus I'm aware that he's not big on talking about his movies. Yeah. He's not big on talking about himself. So I'm kind of like, well, if I get him, I get him. If I don't, I don't. I'll still try and get everybody mm. around him, you know. And I got to the point where I was kind of thinking, I had some mutual friends built up from the previous books, yeah. uh, people who knew Walter and mm. have worked with him. And they said to me, and it was one of those things, it was kind of like Burt Reynolds as well. There was kind of a layer of protection around him. You know, some people I asked to speak to, they said, well, is Walter going to speak to you? And I said, <laughs> I, I don't know. I said, well, they said, I'll, I'll speak to you if Walter speaks okay. to you. So then I was thinking, oh, maybe I should try and get Walter if I want to speak to these other people. You know, if I have Walter on board, that'll open the floodgates. And then like, Walter's, he's not on social media or he doesn't yeah. have his own website. One of those old school Hollywood yeah. guys. So I had some mutual friends and I said, okay, listen, I'll, I'll try and get Walter and then I'll get back to you. And then if, yeah. if he says, yeah, well then. So eventually I, I spoke to so many people that I did reach out to Walter via his manager and Walter got back to me and said, I heard you've been talking to all my friends, so maybe I should talk to you. <laughs> okay, so, which wow. was great. And he, he gave me unlimited access, you know, wow. even though he was a busy man, he, he gave me some great, great access. And did he, In I mean, maybe it's hard for you to answer, but Walter's not here. Did he enjoy the process when he did it of talking to you about the movies? The biggest compliment is the fact that he, he spoke to me as much as he did, that he did open up the door to speak again and yeah. again as much as I wanted to. I kind of said, listen, as, long, as much as you want to talk, we'll talk. You know, at first, you know, there were certain things you kind of gauge the temperature of an interview from mm -hmm. the start, as you know. And I could tell there were certain things, not off limits, but, you know, he's yeah. very reticent about talking yeah. about it. As he says himself, once the film is done, he never watches it again. You know, he's, A lot he's, of them he, say that. Yeah. yeah, he sees the final cut and that's it. So, you know, talking about certain movies, there was ones he wasn't too keen on talking about anyway. And then there's the ones that, you know, maybe he just doesn't remember the yeah. detail that I'm kind of getting into. But I think the, the key with Walter was we both have a shared love of old Hollywood, of the old masters like yeah. Raoul Walsh and D.W. Um, Griffith and John Ford. And there was a great moment. One of my favourite moments of uh, this whole book writing endeavour of mine was we were we were talking about Raoul Walsh and our love of High Sierra in Colorado Territory. And okay. he said, Wayne, hold on a second. I have to show you something. And 50 years ago, whatever it was, he was starting out writing. He had contacted he actually did he opens the script for the getaway with a dedication to Raoul Walsh and I asked him about that and that's when he said hold on a second I have to show you something and he sent Raoul Walsh the script to the getaway just as a kind of yeah. hey I did this you know I'm a fan of yours whatever and Raoul wrote him back and he sent him this lovely letter you know giving him some in, some 
some advice on the film industry and wanting to be a director and all that. And they ended up meeting at Raoul's house and had a lovely talk and all that. But Walter went and got the letter and showed it to me. And he says, have a look at this. And for a good five minutes, the two of us were just geeking out over this letter from Raoul Walsh, which Walter had lost for decades. And he only found the week before talking to me. And so for that moment, it wasn't me talking to my hero, Walter. It was just two film fans gushing over this letter from Raoul Walsh. Yeah. And that was one of my favourite moments in any of this. We don't have enough time to go through everything. There's fascinating things like he wrote Aliens, mm-hmm. but I don't think he was wild on talking about that. But he he fell out of favour a bit, you know, mid-90s, early noughties. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, you know, Walter was making some movies which were, I suppose, controversial for the... Given the time, you know, like Trespass, for example, mm. which is a fantastic film, ended up going straight to video. And it's probably probably the first experience of that that Walter had. Okay. And it was because it was released at the same time as the Rodney King L.A. riots. Okay. So the original uh, title for the film was The Looters. Okay. Can't release a film called The Looters when all the headlines no, you can't. are depicting looting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was a racially sensitive film as well. Pitting white against black. You know, it was just too controversial, too hot a topic for Universal so they dumped it straight to video they released it on Christmas Day in America which was just a kiss of death mm. you know and it, it lasted a week came straight to video I think in the rest of the world um, so I think he's a victim of circumstance sometimes and you know he's and he is a kind of an old I call him an old Hollywood filmmaker he's an old fashioned filmmaker not in a pejorative sense he's old fashioned in the sense that he comes from that old Hollywood mentality yeah. of he's an he's an auteur but he's the kind of guy who will give as much credit to the people he works with. You know, I, I say, as I opened the book, you know, talking about the auteur theory and what it means and how a director puts a stamp on films to make it a Walter Hill film. Yeah. But then I conclude the book by saying, you know, we, we spent this book talking to whatever, 30, 40 odd people who are part of that making vision. a Walter Hill film. So he's, I think he's one of those, he's, he's not a particularly maybe fashionable director at times. Sure. You know. Tell me this, what, you know, his views on 48 Hours, I'm wondering, because I, I, I always, five degrees of septua- separation, I'm a big Eddie Murphy fan, and I don't think, I, obviously he's done some questionable things and said some questionable things over the years, but I think he's a very smart guy and he's a comedy guru, I think, and he's made some great films like Dolomite is My Name and stuff, but 48 Hours is one of them. Ah, I like the sequel as well, to be honest, yeah. but did, what was his, is he tired of 48 Hours? No, I think... It, Kind of looks back at it kind of amusedly, you know, when he even thinks of the, the struggles that they went through to keep Eddie Murphy on that film because Paramount wanted to get rid of him. He wasn't really working well with camera. Like he was, he was a comedian, so he was used to working, you know, live television and just standing up there and doing his thing. Mm. But when it came to shooting scenes where your your character is required to know stuff that isn't, <laughs> hasn't yet been filmed and yeah. you mightn't have read the, the script yet or whatever. So you're playing imaginary and Eddie wasn't great at that. So many times throughout the making that film, Paramount, you know, he was on the edge of being fired. And, you know, Walter struggled with that because he could see that there was faults in Eddie's performance. But the way he, he looked at it was if, if Eddie gets fired, that's a failure of him as a director. Mm. You know, he's there to get the performance that's required. He hired Eddie because Walter's wife was also Eddie's agent. So there was that connection there. Right. And he just took he took a chance on him. You know, he never made a movie before. He had no yeah. training whatsoever. So there was a lot of work involved to get that Eddie Murphy performance that's in there. And of course, that became the Eddie Murphy we all Absolutely. Know and and Eddie Murphy owes him huge credit for that because his, t- his film, you know, persona comes from that Yeah, movie. absolutely. Yeah. And then it was a different situation when it got to another 48 hours. By then, eight years later, Eddie You'd Murphy was Beverly the biggest. Hills, Cobb, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Huge, biggest star in the world. Yeah. So, But it was a different... 
different tone on production, you know, because Eddie had his entourage and he was a co-producer and, you know, he was more involved yeah. and he was more powerful. Yeah. You know, at yeah, that stage, was. Eddie Murphy was a bigger name than Walter Hill yeah. in that film. But well, Or Nick Nolte, probably. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it switched, you know. And yeah. I actually, I'm a huge fan of Another 48 Hours and I said that to Walter. And he was delighted to hear that because he thinks, you know, there's, there's things in that which are as good as the first one, yeah. but it doesn't get the kudos for it. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that one. The movie I said, uh, Dead for a Dollar, imminent. Where are we at with that? It has received its premiere at the Venice Film Festival, oh, okay. at which Walter was awarded the uh, Cartier Awards, Lifetime Achievement kind yeah. of award. Um, the reception has, was good over there. Um, I don't think it did, the reviews have been mixed for okay. its American release. Again, it's one of those situations where I don't think the release was very good. It was kind of released, I think, on Amazon Prime at the same time. So one of those dual okay. cinema and streaming. But it hasn't movies. been released here yet. No. Okay. I, at this stage, I don't even know if it is going to get a cinema oh, release here. Okay. So. I'd love it. You know, it'd be great to see a, a Have you Western. seen it? I haven't yet, no. Okay, okay. No. Well, we wish that were beta bright. Listen, in closing then, could you give our listeners a top three Walter Hill movie? Sorry to go all listicle on you, but ones <laughs> they should watch. Now, do you want the classics or do you want Wayne's picks? Well, <laughs> g- g- give me a version of both. Tell me five Walter all Hill right. movies that okay. are worth watching. It'll be a mix of Essentials and Wayne picks. Okay. okay. So the Essentials, I would say, going in are Southern Comfort, yes. 48 Hours. I'm not a big fan of the Warriors. Okay, uh, controversial. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's very good, but it's definitely not among my favorites of Walters. I think he's done so much better, and it's great that it's become beyond the cult film to become an American classic yeah. almost. But it's not one of my favorites, so I'm going to leave that out. Then I'll also say Last Man Standing. I think is mm. one of, if not his, uh, definitely his late period masterpiece. Yeah. It's everybody it's who who's working on that film. I think is at the peak of their, of their powers. I mean, um, Ry Cooder's greatest score ever. I think. It's a brilliant soundtrack. Beautiful. I listened to it last night, actually. Lloyd Hearn's yeah. cinematography is absolutely stunning. And I think Walter is just at his most creative on that film. Um, what else? I would say I, Extreme Prejudice, I'm a huge fan mm-hmm. of. I think that's Walter's ultimate ode to Sam Peckinpah and the Wild Bunch, mm-hmm. even though he might be loathed to admit it. Okay. Um, but uh, it's it's too uncanny. There's too many references in there. But I think it's, again, it's Nick Nolte, Michael Ironside, mm-hmm. Clancy Brown, wonderful supporting cast. Very tough, no-nonsense action movie. You know, in the vein, I think it's the closest thing, it's the closest of his non-Western films to a Western. Um, let me see. Hard Times is a good watch. Hard Times is brilliant and such an assured debut as well. Yeah. It's hard to believe that that's a first time director. I know, yeah. But um, I would say Geronimo. Geronimo, okay. just as a Western, is so beautiful. And of all his Westerns, it's his most It's his most beautifully filmed. It's his most kind of elegiac. He's great cast. a very, as you're talking there and I'm thinking about him, and it's not a criticism, but in some voice it could be. He's a very male director, isn't he? He is, yeah. There's uh, not a huge amount of strong female characters. Uh, maybe it is a criticism, but I mean, that, that as I'm looking down through the list, I'm thinking that. But yeah. I mean, you can argue the toss with me. I would say maybe there's not many female leads. Mm. There are many strong female characters yeah. in the films, yeah. but certainly not leads. Now, there's the odd exception um, with, the, with the assignment, for example. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he comes from the tra- tradition of the old Western yes. genre filmmaking, which I guess was predominantly male. Indeed it And was. had its fair share of strong women supporting roles. Yes, yeah. Um, but y- if you wanted to, you could go through the Walter Hill filmography and find a lot of great strong female yeah. characters. And when I was talking to Gina Garchon, she raved about Walter. Actually, all of the, all of the female, all of, all of the women who I spoke to, be they crew... Filmmakers, actresses, 
they all spoke so highly of Walter and said he was he's one of the the most female friendly okay. filmmakers in Hollywood. He has given so many of them a leg up to, yeah. to, to become directors or producers or just giving them great roles. And Gina Gershon said he was just like a, almost like a father figure. He was so supportive of her and he actually wrote her role to be more, to be bigger in Red Heat, okay. to be much more substantial than it originally was. Well, that's good to hear. Walter Hill, the cinema of a Hollywood maverick, the authorised cinematic biography by Wayne Byrne is available now. Yes, it should be available now from all good bookstores or you can get it direct from McFarland Publishers. Fantastic. And just in closing then, as I say, you publish and write a lot of books. Your next one is completely different. It's not even about the movies. It's very different, yeah. It's called Women of the Road and On Record in Alternative Music. And it is it is different for me because I'm not writing it myself either. I'm co-writing it with one of my best friends, Amanda Kramer, who is a wonderful musician herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she comes from... She's a member of the Psychedelic Furs and she's worked with the Eurythmics, 10,000 Maniacs, Golden Palominos. Yeah, we were talking about this. She texted me one day, one morning I was getting out of bed and she's like, hey, I have an idea for a book. And so I said, okay, I'll call you on my lunch break and see what the story is. And she told me about this idea and she had these 10, this definitive list of 10 musicians that she really wanted to write about. People she knew down the years Mm -hmm. or people she just knew of. You know, so we have people like Gaylan Dorsey who was from David Bowie and Gang of Four, Sarah Lee from the B-52s. All uh, female musicians. It's all female musicians. Yeah. So they're basically they're session musicians or touring musicians who've played with some of the biggest bands you've ever heard of. Yeah. Caroline Dale, who's worked at Page and Plant in U2, David yeah. Gilmore. Um, but they're not on the cover. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't you don't see them getting all the... Three feet from stardom as the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're the people in the wings. Or, but they're the ones who contribute the great bass lines or the great guitar lines or keyboard lines, cello, whatever it is. So that's what we've we've spent the last year doing. And I'm literally this week finishing that book. So that's the next one. The man is busy. But while we wait for that, you could do a lot worse than getting your hands on Walter Hill, the cinema of a Hollywood maverick, maverick published and written by Wayne Bourne. Wayne, thanks a million. Thanks so much, John, for having me. Up next, Bertie Ahern on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. We haven't done the favourite movie slot in a couple of weeks. And we're back with a bang, because sitting opposite me is former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. Bertie, thank you very much for coming into studio. Thank you very much and delighted to be on your programme. Listen, uh, this slot's always curious to me. You never know what someone is going to choose as their favourite movie. And in a month of Sundays, I never thought this would be your favourite movie. So will you tell our listeners what it is, please? My favourite movie, going back to when I was young, but I, I still watch it and watch it time again with me own kids and grandkids is The Sound of Music. Wow. Did you see this with your own parents or do you I remember the first time mother, you saw it? Okay. Um, in the old Cinerama in Abbey Street. Wow. Um, and I think I probably saw it twice with my mother, if not more. It was on for an age back in, in 66, 67. Yeah. Um, and it, then, of course, it, it's on every every year. <laughs> it, it tends to be on every Christmas, if not a few times during the year. So I don't know how many times I've watched it back, but it's still, I was a big Julie Andrews fan anyway mm. uh, from the time I was in school. And um, I, 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 I loved all the, the Julie Andrews films and TV work. Um, but The Sound of Music, I think, it, it, because it was a great story, mm-hmm. because it was more or less a true story, uh, the Van Trapp family and uh, all that happened in the war. And, you know, it, it, it was, uh, I, I tend to be a person that likes um, real things rather than mm-hmm. fiction. 
Um, so The Sound of Music, I thought, uh, as a film, the fact it won so many Oscars, I think five Oscars, it won every award that it ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it, it's, there's a certain amount of films that fill the test of time. I mean, I I love the latest Elvis one, okay. obviously, because I, 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 I kind of, my music was was back in a time, a particular time, probably the 60s and 70s, yes. early 70s. But The Sound of Music by far was my, my, my favourite film. And when you watch it now with your own children, I have done, do you think it still stands up today all these years later? It does, I, I think. And, and you know, what what I find interesting and with my grandkids is that uh, it always had a fascination with me as a great story. I mean, mm. it was a really good story and... Um, you know how it how it went from you know the ups and downs and the sad bits and the you know the bits what you know would she marry him would she not you know what 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 would happen her when she went to another but they they the kids now watching when they stick with it then they stick with it for whatever it is you know two and a half hours <laughs> which is long in this day and age it is yeah long, you know because not no, normally when, when they're on YouTube and everything else it's uh, yeah. three minutes flat but no they, this it, it, it's a fabulous story and I'm sure there are other ones I tend to like the musicals anyway I, I, I like uh, I, I, I like listening even back to uh, music from you know the 30s and 40s and 50s uh, the mm. old dance bands and the uh, the American music of that period and I like all kind of music um, uh, but but uh, those kind of films attract me but I thought that was a really good film because more the storyline than the yeah. music and obviously there's a pretty powerful you know aside from this romance there's this uh, fleeing the Nazis which is a powerful story which well, still it, stands up today it, it all came from I mean that's where the, it came from the book and came to the story of, 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 of where you know just how dangerous it was and 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 you know even though they were relatively powerful and of influence um just how how they managed to get out um and going from uh being a, a rich family and a you know very lucrative living in a good society you know down to little or nothing just to get mm. away from the Nazis, so um, that that that's that's I mean that storyline. If if I remember, I think it came from the thirties first, mm. and then into the forties yeah. in book form. So it, like it, it was around the. Uh, it, it was around a long time and when in 66 I suppose uh, you'd say it wasn't that far after yes. 66 uh, a- after the, the World War 2 but here we are now um, you know f- and there's sad later, resonances and it's still yeah. people are, are following that yeah. as, a, as a good movie and it might sound like I'm playing to gallery but she listens every week that's actually my mother's favourite film so there's yeah. there you go so mothers and sons and all that stuff tell me this we always ask people particularly non-film people have you ever acted I know the joke is all politicians are actors but were you ever school plays did drama ever appeal to you no, we, we, we had some in, in, in school but there was funny enough um, I, I was born where in Drumcondra, live yes. in Drumcondra, and there was a, a a guy called Brendan B. De Roche. He, he he was a great Irish scholar. He died a few years ago, but he used to run a kind of an amateur uh, drama group, mm-hmm. um, using a, an old chicken shed in All Hollows. <laughs> And um, he he had everybody in doing their piece. Now I was a bit on the younger side, so I I think I I, I definitely did the minor roles. But he used to run these plays mm-hmm. uh, of all the locals. Now he went on to be a formidable Irish scholar in his own right. But he at that time he he, he was uh, 
Uh, so, but they used to have. The, it was a great idea of, of passing hours for. Yeah. For so, did you act on the stage on uh, that? No. no uh, well, if the stage in the chicken house would uh, <laughs> count as a stage, hardly a there was no paying stage. customers then. No. <laughs> there was definitely no paying. Yeah. For, we we never had it in school. Uh, even though my school now, my Christian brothers Saint Aidan School are very good in that. Now, when I was there, they hadn't. Okay. So we we'd no we'd no drama group. Mm. Um, it was all about sport. Yeah. And, 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 and no, no plays. Tell me this, in terms of, you, you mentioned, you know, movies you like and the music you like. Do you watch much television and movies now in your downtime? No, okay. um, I don't. I, I, I watch, I, I'm big sports and yes. news. Uh, so in, in current affairs, I, I, I come in in the evening, um, I watch Sky News, uh, I, I watch RTE News, I watch CNN News, and if there's sports on, I watch that first. Okay, and do you have a Netflix account for I instance? do, okay. I, I, I do. Because there's but some great sports documentaries on Netflix. There, there is, uh, and uh, I, I think the last, uh, I, I re, re, not that long ago, I watched The Guard. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. So... so um, I, I I didn't think it was great to be honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope Brendan Gleeson isn't yeah, well, listening. Yeah, that's it. But uh, you know, <laughs> so, but I I I you know I I'd, I'd still watch a, a bit. But uh, yeah, and I'd I'd watch now. I I love this time of the year because you start getting the um, the Christmas movies. Did you do? Uh, yes. And and there'd be Christmas movies every day and every night. I'd watch them, and I'd watch sports films. I mean, I'd I'd still go back. Um, and watch some of the, there's some very good old ones of the 1960 Olympics mm-hmm. and 64 and they've improved the uh, a lot of those when I was watching those as younger you, you were watching snow falling on your TV and the production was very mm. but they've gone back on a lot of those yeah. now and produced really good productions of 60s Olympics in, in, in Rome 64 Tokyo so those, those ones I, and I'd still I'd still sit down and watch those for hours Okay two last quick things then related matters you mentioned music Beatles or Stones? Beatles. No question. Uh, no question about it. Uh, um, even though I went to see the Stones at Crow Park when, and I, I, I was impressed. Um, but uh, no, it was be- Beatles. Be- be- Fair Beatles, enough. Beatles, Beatles for me. Can't argue with that. And finally then, you didn't really act. There was a bit of amateur dramatics, but any politician is certainly, and you were chief among them, public speaking is, is a key talent, which is kind of, you know, it's not acting, but it's related to that. Was there a moment in your life that you thought, I'm not afraid of talking in public. I can stand up. Uh, particularly when you started in politics, there was there was less TV and there was more public speaking. Was there a moment you thought, I can do this in front of a crowd? Well, one of the things, I hung around with a group of guys and in, in the probably 67, 67, 68, I mean, we were huge into pop music at that stage and it was a great period of music. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we used to do, we, we began to have... Um, uh, recorders for for the first time, you know, six, seventeen, sixteen, seventeen. So one of the things we used to do on a Friday night was have a debate about something, and we'd record ourselves, maybe a half dozen of us, seven or eight of us, and we record ourselves debating some topic. And if it was your house, you picked the topic. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it could have been anything. It could have been anything from 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 sports to something someone saw on TV yeah. or some music. Um, I, I remember we did one on the Bee Gees one night, say up after night studying on the Bee Gees. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and and but that got you talking mm. and 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 debating. And then I went on. I was on the school's team and the debating, um, and and then you just get into it. But like in, in the early years, I always think a, a, about public debates or you know doing university debates or you know you always have to be a certain amount of tension in you because if if if, if you're not tensed up a little bit about mm. it you know it's 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 not good yeah a bit so of it would be to this day after all the 
thousands of hours of yapping I would have done in various places from the doll to around the world. You'd you'd still you'd still always be a bit of apprehension. A bit of healthy tension. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it it it's good. But you know, I I, I regularly go now to uh, colleges and classes and third level schools and. And the level of debate and the standard of some of the speaking now is superb. Mm. I mean, the self-confidence of the, mm. of the teenagers, boys and girls, um, is, is really great. And, and, you know, they're questioning the way they follow through their line of thought. Um, there, there, there's no nervousness in the, the <laughs> present generation, I can tell you. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. He was up all night studying the Bee Gees in the 60s. His favourite movie is The Sound of Music. Former teacher Bertie Hearn, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Now, when anything bothers me and I'm feeling unhappy, I just try and think of nice things. What kind, kind of things? things? Oh, well, let me see. Nice things. Daffodils. Green meadows. Skies full of stars. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Cream-coloured ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with a moon on their wings. These are a few of my favourite things. A clip there from The Sound of Music, the favourite movie of Bertie Ahern. Yes, that Bertie Ahern, the former Taoiseach. And my gratitude to him for coming into studio to talk to me about his favourite movie. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, I will be talking to Jared Harris. I mean, people describe him as the son of Richard, but he's so much more the star of things like Mad Men and Chernobyl, a brilliant actor. The reason why I describe him as the son of Richard is because he's talking to me primarily about his father because there's a great Sky Arts documentary airing this Saturday called The Ghost of Richard Harris, which Jared is in and very involved in. And that's going to be on Sky Arts on on Saturday evening and will be available uh, to stream from Skyart after that and it's brilliant and I'm going to be talking to Jared Harris about that that's it for this week my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show if you want to get in touch with me at any stage email me screentime at newstalk.com or you can tweet me john underscore farty thank you for listening we'll do it all again next week and have a safe week